0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: You're listening to The Literary Life. Now sponsored by the Literary Hub, you can listen to us on Lit Hub Radio at lithub.com or on any of the many platforms you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to check out LitHub Radio for the finest variety of podcasts on literary subjects found anywhere on the internet. My guest today is Edwidge Danticat. Edwidge is the author of many, many, many books, including Breath Eyes Memory, An Oprah Book Selection, Crick Crack, a National Book Award finalist, The Farming of Bones, The Dewbreaker, Create Dangerously, Claire of the Sea Light, and Everything Inside. She's also the editor of The Butterfly's Way, Voices from the Haitian Diaspora in the United States, Best American Essays, 2011, Haiti Noir and Haiti Noir 2. She's written seven books for children and young adults Anna Keona, Behind the Mountains, Eight Days, The Last Mapu, Mama's Nightingale, Untwined, My Mommy Medicine, as well as a travel narrative after the dance. Her memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, was a 2007 finalist for the National Book Award and a 2008 winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography. She's a 2009 MacArthur Fellow, a 2018 Ford Foundation, The Art of Change Fellow, and the winner of the 2018 Neustadt International Prize. I've known Edwidge for almost 30 years first meeting her when she traveled to Miami to participate in a writing conference sponsored by the University of Miami that was funded by James Mishner after he spent time here researching his novel, Caribbean. The conference participants would read from their work at the original Books and Books just across the street from where we are now. All of us then listening to this young woman knew that we were in the presence of someone very, very special. Today, we celebrate the publication of a new collection of stories, Everything Inside. And just like the rest of her body of work, this has been heralded with remarkable notices. The New York Times recently said, Haiti is the emotional core of this collection, though the characters roam the world. In these rich, vibrant stories, lovers reconcile after a catastrophe, a daughter meets her dying father for the first and last time, and a family reunites at a baby's christening. Publishers Weekly in a Starred Review writes, Families fracture and reform in Ed Wiege's outstanding and deeply memorable story collection. Set among the Haitian diaspora, including Miami, New York, and Haiti itself, the tales describe the complicated lives of people who live in one place but are drawn elsewhere. In plain, propulsive prose and with great compassion, Edwidge writes both of her characters' losses and of their determination to continue. As she writes, there are loves that outlive lovers. Kirkus gives it a starred review and says, extraordinary, spare, evocative, moving. Edwidge tackles the complexities of the aspera with lyrical grace, and from Oprah's magazine, Haunting, profound, and answered prayer for those who have long treasured Dantecott's essential contributions to the Caribbean literary canon. Edwidge, welcome to The Literary Life.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mitchell.
2: Let's talk about your new book, Everything Inside. These are a collection of stories. First, how long have you been working on these stories?
1: Well, the earliest of these stories goes back to 2006. So I have been, I've been working on the stories for a long time. Some of them are more recent, a couple of them, two of them I wrapped up last year. Um, but I've always been working on short stories while I'm working on my other work, you know, my nonfiction and and other work, uh, because it's a form that I love very much. And I really love the way that in a short story you can have Uh, sort of a limited universe. There's so much economy and there's so much layering. Uh, So I I keep working on them no matter what else I'm doing.
2: These stories are remarkable. And you include two epigraphs, which I think explain a lot about the stories. The first is by uh, Cindy Jimenez Vera. And it says, being born is the first exile. To walk the earth is an eternal diaspora. First, who is Cindy, and tell me what the meaning of this is to you?
1: Well, Cindy's a, a poet from Puerto Rico, and actually, the way this became the epigraph is a story on itself. She actually walked past me on an airplane, and and said hello, and we we chatted, and then she gave me her her collection of poems, uh, just on the plane, and I just I sat there and read them. And, um, there was actually one about sort of saying goodbye in an airplane. And I, I took a picture of that, said that to my husband just in case. <laughs> yeah. And then this other one, I was like, Oh my gosh, this has got to be like in my book because I feel like it encapul- encapsulates so much of what the, the spirit of the book is. So she's a wonderful poet. And, um, and we talk so much these days, you know, about immigration and diaspora. And I feel like these, this sentiment, you know, just takes it back to the beginning of just like birth as exile, you know, it just takes it back to the like Adam and Eve being thrown out of of something primal, right? To, to equate that experience with diaspora felt very powerful for me. And the other epigraph is by Nikki Giovanni. We love because it's the only true adventure. And um, when the I was putting the stories together because, as you know, know, stories take on a whole different form when they're next to other stories by the same author. You know, you can be in a magazine with other things and someone reads that story. It's a singular experience. But when you have eight stories, then they're naturally, if it's by the same person, there are some common themes. And for me, um, one of the common themes is diaspora, but also love. You know, I see all of these stories as essentially love stories, whether they're, you know, romantic love, parent and child love, um, love of country. Uh, so all of those, you know, both, of, both diaspora and love are central themes in the stories.
2: And what was so interesting to me is when I I read these stories twice through, and I read the epigraphs the second time. I didn't really read them the first time. And when I read them the second time, it it really, a light bulb went off. Because when I read them the first time, what struck me was just how universal these stories are. And then with the epigraph, where you talk about being born as the first exile, we're all born. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the universality of it all is just that. And even though these stories are very particular about uh, mostly Haitian diaspora, um, I think that I, not being Haitian, responded and reacted to all of them on a very human level. And the same with love. The love that is shown in all of these isn't particular necessarily to any particular Sensibility—it's love in
1: general. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's love, and I think people seeking love, people misunderstanding love, people—you know—taking love for granted. Well, and, and facing love, yeah.
2: facing love in very harsh circumstances. Yes, exactly.
1: Well. Which is which is all I think part of, you know, the difficult experiences. Even even uh, especially when they're linked to you know economic hardships. I mean, that's I think sometimes people forget that in the middle of political strife, in the middle of very difficult lives, people still love, you know, people fall in love and they get married. And, and I think that's something that we deprive um, people of this, that type of narrative also, and from the places where I come from, you know, if people are separated from their children, it's because they don't love the way you know we do or what you know that i've heard that a lot like of, oh they, these people don't love their children the way we do love their children because they are at right. the border with them because they left them behind and so forth so i think that's something that's not that's not allowed to us sometimes that people who were enslaved love their children well, you know or that people were in political situations too yeah what
2: it reminds me of a little bit is that notion that when we think of history we just think of the really big events mm-hmm. but we don't think of the small things that really matter to the individual person mm-hmm. that there's a lot of humanity that happens that that doesn't reflect itself in the fact that there was world war 1 mm-hmm. <laughs> you know there was humanity happening in between the headlines so to speak and i think that's what you brought out so naturally in this book the backdrop are these very large events mm-hmm. But it's how they affect individual people that brings that brings them home, I think.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Is that something you'd agree with?
1: Well, this that's what I really love in this form, you know, in the short story as a form, is that it's sort of it seems like a a smaller, you know, cousin to the to the bigger narratives, like to the novel, but I think the shape of it allows you to magnify smaller moments, right? To linger Um, on on these small epiphanies and these smaller interactions that that means so much so yes I mean I think that's that's what I I feel like it's it's like painting right and 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 often when you're asked to like look at this detail you know and so that's that's what I'm trying to do so like in the and the creases and then the folds of people's lives, you know. Right.
2: Well, there's that Williams poem, you know, so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens, right? Mm, and exa- that's yeah. kind of mm-hmm. what this is. This is yeah. these are those red wheelbarrows.
1: Yeah, and and there and there's always going to be, I think, um, for people who come from a place like I come from, come, you know, there's always going to be a big backdrop right there's always going to be some big event whether it's political whether the the event is the distance itself you know the fact that people are living away from from their country but there's also you know the daily life and and i really wanted in the stories to go into the daily lives and how people manage that with the with the larger background
2: well one of the more moving stories for me was the story about the two lovers who are meeting on the 4th of July. And the backdrop is that one of the lovers, the, the man, um, lost his leg and his family in the earthquake. And uh, the woman that he's meeting was um, one of his lovers, not his wife, obviously. And the way you have that unfold is just so Wonderfully and so beautiful, so masterfully that I wonder where the genesis of that came from, and how did you choose to have the earthquake to play the earthquake out in that particular way?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean the uh, soon it will be the tenth year anniversary of of the earthquake. and I personally you know my I lost family members in the earthquake. I lost friends. And I started um, when I started writing that story was uh, Actually, thinking of a Murakami collection after the quake. And in that collection, he there's six stories where, where they follow people after this earthquake. And so you're dealing with the aftermath in the people's lives, are sort of kind of like the fault lines within themselves. And then this couple, there are these people who are sort of living this, you know, uh, th- this life, and then what happens afterwards and how do they recover and it's not so much just about just like recoupling if you will but also what new insight do they have into their lives into life in general so that's what intrigued me the most about sort of people picking up um like very difficult pieces you know after a tragedy and and you know the the one of them says you know we were all supposed to be better we were all supposed to have changed right. and then and, and the irony is that sometimes, even after big things like that, we all sort of, were are better for a minute, right? Right. <laughs> and, then, like, well, and,
2: and the character is struggling, yeah. struggling with this kind of sense of guilt. It may mm-hmm. be maybe she was happy that there was a death of yeah. the wife and then and then makes a i mean the name of the story is the gift and <laughs> and and the gift that she gives is so kind of inappropriate as mm-hmm. well yeah because way.
1: there there is really no gift that would be appropriate for that right. for that type of loss but uh, i think it's so like when you have such a, a big communal loss of course everybody um, you know, experiences, they're lost in different ways. But then there are always this sort of shards, I think, things that, like these other repercussions of this loss that that takes a while. It's like after we've done all the big work that, you know, we sort of start collecting and talking about. So that's what this this story is is about.
2: So tell me, just, I don't like to talk about process too much, but so... You write so much, and you write in so many different forms. So when you have this idea, um, and I'm sure it came as an idea, do you immediately ascribe it to a short story uh, as opposed to something larger like a novel? Do you write it down in a notebook that this is an idea that you want to play out at some point? Or do you immediately set about writing it at the moment you think about it?
1: Well, this particular, you know, the the short story, the gift, I first wrote it as a play, uh, and this fall, it's actually it's actually going to be produced as a play at SUNY Purchase. Oh, it in, is in New York. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. So I wrote it as a play, but in the play, the you know he comes to visit, you know the the gentleman visits uh, his former mistress and and her apartment in Miami, where she's retreated after the earthquake to Haiti, and it. And the play was very conversational it was and then there was a a, an uncle who was a politician in haiti it was it was sort of like these people getting together to try to rebuild the country from afar which is what a lot of us in the diaspora try to do at least when we gather so i i that one it seemed like it was going to be a play so i wrote i wrote it as a play and then i wanted to to like delve more and then i wrote it as a story but often I try when I get different um, ideas, I try to let the, the idea guide me to what it wants to be. And like sometimes it doesn't, you know, it starts as a play and ends up as a story or it starts as a short story and ends up longer. Um, but I just try to let that, let that guide me. But I, I know the, the only immediate differentiation that occurs to me is sometimes the nonfiction stuff. So there are things that I feel like, oh, I have to say this now so it has to be like an essay or it has to be like a an opinion piece and then and the fiction just takes longer because you have to form like human beings around whatever the, the idea and sometimes the ideas come like you'll get a line that just guides you but in terms of process for me what i always need is a beginning and an end like i need somewhere to start and a place to write towards mm. so that i and even if the beginning ends up being the middle but at least i i have a Like, I have something that I'm moving in the direction of.
2: The other thing that I found very revelatory throughout the whole collection, and it is about the Aspera, but it's really about the ease with which people move between countries, Mm -hmm. that you exist sometimes in two or three places at once, right? I mean, it's not unusual to be... In fact, one of the stories in which where one of the characters is being... um, is being scammed, basically. Mm -hmm. It's just so easy to be calling up people from Miami to Haiti, Haiti to Miami to New York, and finding things out. You know, the cell phones are working everywhere. And, you know, I intellectually understand that. But I think reading it so emotionally, I didn't quite understand just how easy it is. And it's not easy, but how, how convenient it can be. To be operating in so many different countries.
1: Oh yeah, it's the new immigration. It's it's the, it's transnationalism, right? Because when when my when I was a, a girl in Haiti, and my parents needed to speak to me, we had a standing appointment where I used to go to a calling center right. in downtown au Prince every Sunday and wait there for them to call me at three p.m. Um, so we there were we didn't have a phone at the house. There were no cell phones, but now I'm always like I get st- stuff from my cousins and my my relatives in Haiti on WhatsApp all the time. <laughs> you know they can tell. I'm like I I re- I realize that they can tell when I'm on the WhatsApp. <laughs> 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 and so it's very it, the connections are much more. So you feel fluid. connected. You yes, you feel you feel, feel very connected, connected. Um, and it's very different. And I think. Kids in Haiti, like my young relatives, know all about the United States. They watch the tele you know, shows and which was very different than than when I was younger. But that you can even contrast that to like when it took like weeks by boat to get here, right? Like that old immigration pattern where and once you got here, you were here, you know, right. and now people go back and forth more much more um especially if you're in Miami like it's 90 minutes I can be in Port-au-Prince sooner than I can be in New York you know from Miami so it's there's that proximity yet also a, a distance um so i i think that also creates um some new narratives in terms of you know loyalty to the country and how right. you know you're very close to your to your relatives but there are more and more barriers, for example, to them visiting, with you know, with the immigration laws. With the laws immigration and, laws, you know.
2: right? But do you feel less isolated then, because you do know what's going on?
1: Oh yes, I mean, I think, like for example, during the dictatorship, people had to, you know, like my parents' time when they just got here in the seventies, you had to go through a lot of, you know, trouble to get even information of what was happening in the country. Now you know immediately, you know, what's happening.
2: So, let's talk a little bit about hot air balloons, which I found to be really, really um, kind of stunning. I mean, in the sense that it's about it's about roommates in college, and one takes off uh, after a Thanksgiving experience uh, where she worked with a um, a Haitian rape rape crisis center. She actually went to Haiti and Experienced this horrific situation, yet she wasn't Haitian, right? She was mm-hmm. from Trinidad, I mm-hmm. believe. Um, where where was the genesis of that? What 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 were you, what were you constructing in terms of that work?
1: Well, uh, a lot of the stories, um, you know, someone was asking me the other day, like to compare this collection with Crack and um, and Crack, which is my first collection of stories, which was I. I was published about twenty five years ago, and all I could think of was that the the people in Crack, the characters, could be like the parents or grandparents of these people. So a lot of the uh, the characters run younger in this story. They're they're like my nieces and nephews who are college age, and and so. But I, at the same time, I sort of pull on my own um, experience of remembering what it was like to be in, in college and meeting like. Rich people from the place where you come from for the first time, like um, right, because
2: the roommate is from a yeah. She's
1: Trinidadian. She's very she's from a prominent academic family. But
2: the one telling the story is from a Haitian family. Yeah, she's is is, is from a poor Haitian family. family,
1: But there there are also some rich, like better off Haitian families in the book as well. But this young woman is she's from a, a family of. Of migrant workers right. um, here in, in Florida, and she ends up as with her roommate, uh, the daughter of a Trinidadian scholar. Who um, and and she, ironically, is less enthusiastic about going to right. Haiti on this trip than than the, the the young woman, because to her, she's just like she's she's like I want to go, like she wants to go, like to a fun part of Haiti first, right. like she wants her exposure to Haiti to she be. She hadn't been to Haiti. She hadn't been to Haiti, and she's like, right. well, I when, I when I go, I wanna go to the beach and then do this other thing, which, which is, is, which is an interesting approach, and um, and shows also a kind of protectiveness that that I've seen in young, even in my family and the children of my friends who are young Haitian Americans who have not been to Haiti, but who are very protective, Of the image of Haiti, right? You know who sort of, um, and who
2: she wanted to go to the beaches that her parents told her about.
1: Yeah, and it's not callous. It's not like I don't want to do this the service work. It's like she's like I want to do that first, and I think in a way she also feels like, um, why is that the only thing that people want to want to want to talk about? And that's her like that's this character's. It's not a unique viewpoint. And it's something that I get even in the stuff that I write. Like I'm sure I'll get it for this book. People will be like, "Where's the beach?" (laughs) So, so in this case, this young woman is like claiming it for herself. She's like, "I don't. I would like to see like the good things first because she feels like that. Like she's she'll be imprinted because that's. I mean, it's also a generational thing where young people we. You know, I've got I lived in Haiti and I've been going back, but there are younger people who've never been, but who are carrying around with them their parents' stories. And suddenly their trip is a confrontation with their with the ideas that of the country that their parents gave them, which is sometimes a very conflicting idea It'd be like, it's the best place in the world. And then like, don't go, you know, at the same <laughs> right. time. So they're carrying that with her. And this young woman, she I think the, the gist of it is that she wanted to go on her terms, you know, sure. and she, and she wanted to see it the way she wanted to to see it. She didn't want to be guided by well, somebody else's And
2: view. to reiterate what you just said, I mean, the characters all throughout this short story collection are from every walk of life. They're mm-hmm. art collectors, art dealers. They are real estate brokers. They are CNAs who are taking care of older people. Mm-hmm. They are young professionals. So, I mean, it's. It's every aspect of Haitian life. It's not mm-hmm. just one particular aspect.
1: Yeah, and I also wanted to, to have in this these stories, um, something that is not talked about generally. For example, there are a lot of um, CNAs, people I know who are taking care of older Haitians. And when my mom was sick, for example, we um, when we're in the hospital, all the nurses were Haitian. And I remember one day. Um, she woke up and she, you know, from a little uh, dozy from a procedure and there's a Haitian male nurse there. And she said, oh, you know, maybe that's why we all, were all driven here to take care of each other because everybody who took care of her was, was Haitian. So I really also wanted to show that, that into like sort of Haitians working with Haitians, working for Haitians, which is very, very common here in Miami, but that people outside of, of of regions where you have a large you know large Haitian populations, you don't not, see it as yeah, much. Yeah, might not. No, see no, it as no. Much. It, yeah, I
2: mean, I've grown up here. I've lived here my whole life. I mean, I've known every different community, and there were things that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of that, and certainly with my own uh, experiences, Haitian CNAs are are. Are are probably one of the most prominent groups of CNAs mm-hmm. anywhere. Yeah, because uh,
1: it's also one of those things that um, you can learn quickly. Like you can do quickly for so a lot of young women and older women do it um, because you can you can take the test, you study. You know, there's a process to it, but it's one of the more accessible so for jobs. what
2: for, for people who don't know a CNA is a caregiver basically yes,
1: it's a it's a just uh, a
2: notch below being a nurse
1: yeah and yeah it's a home attendant so it's a caregiver like if you go in any mall here in south florida <laughs> right. and you see an older person they're with their, uh, their a CNA their CNA yeah.
2: and 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 we're very fortunate in Miami to have so many good ones as mm-hmm. well i think mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that, that dominates the book and something that I wanted to talk to you about was, uh, and I might be wrong, but almost every story is from a woman's perspective. Is that right?
1: Yes, almost, um, except without inspection, oh, which okay, is the I last one. one. Uh, there's a very prominent woman in there, but the, the main character of that story is a, is a young man
2: doesn't mean there aren't men I mean men play a very prominent role but it's usually the man through the woman's perspective
1: yeah no this is primarily the women the women's stories and I feel like I've always leaned that way in my stories from the beginning and I remember um, my very first reading in a bookstore um, in Brooklyn my brother (laughs) came to the (laughs) reading and just raised his hand he's like where are the men (laughs) I'm yeah. like, you couldn't ask me this privately, <laughs> but, um, but then oh, I had, asked you that in front <laughs> yeah, of the whole audience, of the whole audience. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, and I, I remember just, but he, he forced me to, to think of, um, sort of a reason for it, which is that I feel like it's like you're taking a photograph and you decide to focus on a certain image. And for me, that was always the stories of, of women. It doesn't mean that they were the victim of the man or necess- you know, or, or that there, well, I, I think I know yeah. I think
2: you take, and I think you make the right choices with every point of view that you take. Some are first person, some mm-hmm. are more omniscient, some are third person. but each each time you do it, it it seems like the right choice that you've made,
1: yeah, well, I often you know, I think with point of view is tricky, um you want to hear like the voices of the people, right? so i um, I just i. Just try to let them speak to me, like and I and in the shorter kind of um, genre, you know in this form, you can do that. You kind of just let the let the voices speak to you
2: right. what I mean, to me, one of the central stories which just took my breath away was uh, sunrise, sunset as well, which um which to me maybe because of what I'm going through with my own parents in one way or another, I mean, is one of the most intimate descriptions of uh, the beginnings of dementia and in the middle of dementia that I've ever read, actually, with the character. I think it's Gloria. Thank you. Is it Gloria? Um, who's the ja- Jean.
1: Jean, Jean. Jean and Carol.
2: Oh, Carol! Not yeah. Carol. Carol is the mother, mm-hmm. right? And John is going. John is it. the daughter, and so mm-hmm. she's having a, she's having a christening. She's mm-hmm. for her mother, more or less. Mm-hmm. I think.
1: Yeah, for mistaken. her mother, she did. She yeah, to keep the peace. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well,
2: but her mother keeps coming in and out mm-hmm. of lucidity, more mm-hmm. or less. Um, talk a little bit about it, if you would.
1: Well, um, that story, Sunrise sunset, is about it's sort of the the mother and daughter on two different ends of of a bit of mental you know challenges. The mother's going through dementia, and the daughter has um you know, postpartum depression, and neither really understands um uh, the other because uh, their relationship is is a lot like the relationship like i I feel like I had with my parents on big issues. It's sort of there's a kind of silence about about big things because like as the mother said she's not a good historian which is some, some like I didn't realize it was a medical term but like if you when you go in my own medical adventures with my parents you realize when you they, they call a doctor will call someone a good historian if they're able to tell their medical history um, and so they don't really communicate and they and and you when I was writing the story, I thought, wow, if the mother could read the daughter's part, and if the <laughs> daughter could read the mother's part, they'd really understand each other. And the father's yeah. in a bit of denial. And, yeah, exactly. And and I can understand. I, I, I have great understanding for caretaker denial, because it takes a while for, you know, for, you catch on eventually, like quickly, you have to, because of... The, the requirements of care but I think it takes a, a little bit of adjustment and the father's in the middle and by the
2: adjustment. end everyone knows yeah. I mean by the end it mm-hmm. all becomes very clear but there is even I mean it was haunting to me uh, toward, a, t- toward the very end to hear the internal life of the mother again mm-hmm. who really still kind of was there mm-hmm. and there's a line where she says um it would be fitting it would be a fitting close to her family life or at least to life with her children. You are always saying hello to them while preparing them to say goodbye to you. You're always dreading the separations while cheering them on to get bigger, smarter, to crawl, babble, walk, speak, to have birthdays that you hope you'll live to see, that you that you pray they'll live to see. Jean will no, will now know what it's like to live that way, to have a part of yourself walking around unattached to you. So she's she's cognizant yeah. of what is happening with Jean, even with her kind of mm-hmm. dementia. There's that sense of clarity that happens periodically.
1: Yeah. Well, in every case that I've that I've seen, and we've had some very close family friends. Um, who've had dementia? There's, there's always these moments of absolute, like even hyper lucidity.
2: Well, that's what I took that to be. Yeah, it was like this yeah. piece of wisdom. Yeah, you know, and having kids that are now going on, it's true. You almost want to bonsai them and not get yeah. them
1: to go. Further. Oh, yeah, because I <laughs> and I think for also people who you know, like my my parents who have had to suddenly raise their children without community, you know, who've had to do it in an apartment in New York and, or, you know, there's this without like the grandmas and the neighbors and everybody around. So you really want to bottle those lessons. And I think for, especially for this mom, she feels like she's slipping away. She's like, oh, at, at least my, and, and, you know, because of an event that, that certainly like stimulated the mother a little bit out of her you know postpartum um depression, she feels like at least she you know at least i think she feels like at least I know she knows like now she's felt like these like the stirrings of motherhood, which the mother feels like she she's sort of she's experienced it under very difficult circumstances
2: let's talk let's talk lastly, stylistically about what you chose to do in this book this to me and i could be wrong and you can tell me i'm wrong because we know each other well but Mm -hmm. to me this seems like one of the most straightforwardly written books that you've done by that i mean the style is extremely it's more expository than any other style Mm -hmm. less lyrical than some of the other ones Mm -hmm. although it's beautifully written Mm -hmm. um it gives it to me, it makes it that much more impactful as well. Uh, um, I mean, when you talk about Claire of the Sea Light, you know that was a much more lyrically written novel in many many passages. Is this something that you did intentionally, or is it something that is where you are now?
1: Um, it's it's very fascinating. I was just reading something. One of the reviews of the book were. Um, was a beautiful beautifully written review it was like one of those where you're like even if you're trashing me i'm gonna love this review but it wasn't it was just and the person said gone is the pyrotechnics gone is the um and and i thought it's maybe where i am now i mean or maybe what these stories demanded um i think i it just feels it was like more in this in this case more important to just kind of like linger on like these small moments and really get close like to the like to the skin um and just kind of let the characters speak more than the language i mean it's just maybe how they came out you know no no i think that it, yeah. i think it's it, mm. i think
2: it's a whole like yeah. that it's not you know, and it's it's so effective because you are learning about these stories and you're getting so close to the bone of each character as well.
1: Yeah, and one of the things like I have um and I didn't want it to be I also didn't want this to be a collection of like every story I have. <laughs> so I have other stories that I didn't put in because they felt like thematically jolting, like they would send out. So um so I can I there is a kind of similar thread to these particular stories, in a way that I felt like they could um, speak to one another in a certain way.
2: But I disagree about the pyrotechnics. I don't know if anyone's hearing all the thunder that's going on, <laughs> yes. but we're having pyrotechnics here in Miami yes, right now. Right here. In fact, I hear sadly that there's a hurricane just a few days away that might be heading toward Puerto I Rico. Know. In fact,
1: again. yeah, we. Um, We sort of live in the eye of it here, right? And and as soon as they announce it, you you know, we get nervous on many levels. You get nervous for the family and friends on the islands, and then you sort of have to get your stuff together here. So hopefully it won't be too bad. Except I
2: think we're going to solve the hurricane problem with nuclear bombs being dropped in the middle of them, according to our Uh, president this weekend. Well, (laughs) I
1: would... (laughs) I would laugh at this stuff if I didn't have young children. Yeah, no, we all <laughs> It's always. just, it's very... Um, and then the fate of the world, you know, seems so preca- precarious these days, you know.
2: Let's do, for those who don't know, and I, 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 I know your biography, but if you could just quickly give a little thumbnail of the fact that you came from Haiti and you moved to Brooklyn is where you came, and you came basically without your parents, right? Mm -hmm. And you moved to Brooklyn and you stayed with?
1: Okay, so I was born in Haiti um, in 1969 during the um, Duvalier dictatorship. My father moved to the US uh, when I was two. And then um, two years later, my mom joined him and I uh, stayed with my aunt and uncle who raised me in Haiti. Um, and so I was in Haiti for eight years, uh, be- between the time my mom left, I mean, I was, well, I was there for the first 12 years of my life, but I was eight years, um, without, uh, both my parents during and- a
2: very repressive regime.
1: Yes. And, um, and doing the, that eight, those eight years, my parents were, um, undocumented here in the U.S., but at some point they, they got- their papers and went to Haiti once and filed papers for us and when I was 12 um, in 1981 I moved to Brooklyn, New York and um, I went started school there doing at the height of the um, AIDS epidemic during which um, Haitians we were the only group um, considered high risk by nationality with with brought with it a whole host of complications. People, again, people who were like CNAs um, lost their jobs because people didn't right. know how trans you know how the disease was transmitted and people who worked in kitchens lost their jobs. A lot of my parents' um, friends lost their jobs. and I remember uh, the kids at school would hit us and, you know, make fun of us. And I remember there was one school trip we weren't even allowed to go to. Um, so it was a very difficult time to lend in. New York what got me through uh, personally it was was reading and I remember going to my high school was very close to the main branch of the Brooklyn Public Library um, and across from the Brooklyn Museum so I would go to the library all the time and get like all the books that I could read and and French then um, a lot of that's how I started reading a lot of Haitian literature which was on those shelves then and Um, And then I started reading, first book I read in English was Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I read that with a dictionary and was just like completely overwhelmed by like- You learned English in the United
2: States. In
1: the United States, yeah. Um, And and then I started writing when I I was in high school for a newspaper called New Youth Connections, which was a newspaper that was distributed throughout um, the high schools, public high schools in New York City. And I wrote a story for them about my first day in the US that then I kept writing and that became Birth Eyes Memory.
2: Oh, is that right? That yeah. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And and your career has just sort of gone in so many different directions. I mean, Brother I'm Dying is one of the most, mm-hmm. you know, remarkable stories of 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 love as well as immigration. As well as being entangled in our horrible immigration process. Um, and that's about your uncle, right? Who yeah. tried to come over but was stuck in Chrome and couldn't get out of Chrome and all of that sort of thing. Um, and then, and then just last year when you wrote The Art of Dying, which to me, you know, uh, I would be carrying it around and reading it and people are going, you really like reading about all that stuff dealing with dying. <laughs> and I go, yes, well, if you read this book, you will too. Uh, and now you've written children's books as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, for those who don't know Edwidge, she's also probably one of the most informed people about cultural and culture in general, not only just popular culture, but you can't have a conversation with Edwidge Without her either asking questions or telling you about something that you didn't know about. And it's something that I've always, always, always appreciated about our time together. And I know that the death of Toni Morrison meant a lot to you as well, and the life of Toni Morrison did. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Oh my gosh, Ms. Morrison. Um, we've had some wonderful, sort of, circuitous encounters. So I first met her at a reading I went to at Barnes and Noble um where she had um edited I think some like Tony Kid Bombera's last book, um These Bones Are Not My Child, or had written an introduction, was presenting it at this Barnes and Noble.
2: There she is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> Hello, Ms. Morrison. Uh, so I I remember going and like I brought her some flowers <laughs> and and I was lucky enough to have Jill Cremens, the author's photographer, was there that night, and um, she took a picture of us. And at that time, I had used was working also before that for Jonathan Demme, who had um, was about to shoot *Beloved*. So I saw her again on the set of *Beloved*, and I just remember being incredibly like as a writer being on that set you know where i was w- i'm actually in that movie quiet, really? quiet as it's kept oh, it's wow. so there, there are 30 women who come to kind of um oust the ghost and so i'm i'm an extra i'm one of the 30 women oh, if cool. you blink you'll miss me but i'm in there and so i remember seeing her, her on the set and The day she was coming to the set, everybody was just like, oh my God, I was so excited because we were like living in her brain, you know, like filming this movie. And then um, a couple of years later, she invited me when she was doing this month-long residency at the Louvre. So we got to spend some time together in in Paris at the Louvre when she was in residence, which was a a glorious residency. She... Uh, a lot of the talks that she gave at the Louvre are in her um, recent book, the uh, of essays and the speeches, book. Yeah, yeah, on the the theme was the Foreigner's Home. So ten years after that, we um, uh, her son Ford had filmed all of that, and then some filmmakers put together mm-hmm. a film called The Foreigner's Home about that. And then I got to go to her home and and talk to her on 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 screen about about that. So. Her passing, you know, at eighty-eight, she gave us so much, but it's, you know, it's a very, it's it's very sad. I'm still getting used to it, as I am getting used to the, also the death of Paul Marshall. Yeah, I just saw that. Yeah, who was also a very important um, writer and person in my life, who who helped me get my first job at NYU um, as a young writer, who I I also spent a lot of time with, and in her office there so it's it's sort of a a, a year of it's a passing of yeah, generations yeah. i think it's very it's very sad but i i you know i want to say what i love most about both women as writers is that in their presence they had incredible f- friendships with other writers and in their presence, you never had that feeling that someone was trying to knock someone off the throne. Right. <laughs> that there was so much sisterhood and and just Generosity. Like, yes, that I, I felt like was a wonderful model to have. Like, what are some of the
2: know. other shoulders you feel like you stand on?
1: Um, a Haitian writer, Marie Vieux Chauvet, who I never had the, the honor of meeting, but who was an extraordinary writer, one of our seminal writers. Um, one of her novels was um, actually her seminal work is called "Amour, Couleur, Folie" (Love, Anger, and Madness).
2: Did you write the introduction? The, I to wrote that. the
1: introduction to that, and it was a a long, you know, uh, haul in trying to get that in English. But it's now in the Modern Library; people can read can read mm-hmm. her and and a writer named Jacques Roumain, Masters of the Dew, and um, Jacques Stephen Alexis, who actually. Um, wrote a, a novel that inspired my wanting to explore the the massacre of uh, patient cane workers in the farming of bones.
2: Wow. Well, Edwidge, it's just been delightful to have you as part of, you know, on The Literary Life. Um, what I'd love you to do is if you could give uh, our audience just a little taste of what they will come to enjoy about everything inside, that would be great if you could just do a little reading from it.
1: Okay, so this is from my guy story <laughs> without <laughs> inspection. Um, and it's about it's about a man falling, and it's something, um, I started writing this story when um, two things were happening simultaneously in the news here, where boats were coming and on like a regular beach here someone like a boat from Haiti or from Cuba would land on a beach and then right. and then there were people who were working on construction sites who were just were falling plunging to sadly to their deaths so this um, this is the man this man is falling and has fallen and he lands somewhere in a cement mixer on the construction site and he's thinking about the people he loves this landing was even more abrupt than his last one. His free fall ended as his body slammed into the drum of the cement mixer. He was being tossed inside a dark blender full of grout. Every few seconds, his face would emerge from under the wet, pounded sand and pebbles, and he would keep his mouth closed, trying to force air out through his nose and push away the grainy mix that his body was trying to inhale. He pretended that he was swimming and tried to flutter kick, just as he had when the speedboat stopped in the middle of the ocean and he was told to swim ashore. He, attended, he attempted arm strokes, but couldn't move either his arms or his legs. Still, his body was in constant motion because the mixer continued to turn. He reached for the shaft, what in a more stable place, in a house or a temple Or some other holy place you might call a potomitan, a middle pillar. He used what was left of his strength to propel his body towards the shaft and wrapped his hands around it. He was able to hold on briefly before he was pulled in another direction. He felt lighter now, even lighter than when he had been falling. His bones were melting, his blood evaporating, and he was now like parchment or something porous, Tool or the white eyelet lace Darlene loved. He had not been paying attention to the alternating hum and jangle of the mixer. He hadn't noticed that there were streaks of blood polluting the cement or that he was feeling no pain. Then the mixer stopped spinning and he heard the stillness, which was soon replaced by screams and grunts and oh my god. Then he heard the sirens, which took him back to the beach, to the gray sand, and Darlene's sable face her azure jogging suit, Paris's red shirt, and his own orange and green speckled vomit. Then he heard the sirens, which took him back to the beach, to the gray sand and Darlene's sable face, her azure jogging suit, Paris's red shirt. From where he was lying inside the cement mixer, he saw an airplane cart across the clear blue sky, and that was when he realized that he was dying, And his dying offered him a kind of freedom he'd never had before. Whatever he thought about, he could see in front of him. Whatever he wanted, he could have, except what he wanted most of all, which was not to die.
2: Hmm. Beautiful, Edwidge. Thank you. Thank you for being on the very thunderous literary life today.
1: (laughs) Yes, this was a really thunderous one. (laughs) Thank you for having me.